I'm sure that you have trusted somebody to come through for you and that person let you down. It's not a nice feeling, is it? It's kind of weird to have a support and have a help and then whoop, it's not there. And you're, as they say, hung out to dry. And it's, it's worse when you act on an assumption that something is true and you're confident and then you find out, oh no, I didn't really know how it worked. I just assumed I knew how it worked. And now I have let myself down because I didn't find out how it worked. So people let you down. You let yourself down. Let down is a universal human experience. Am I correct? I am correct. Now, we see a number of people in this chapter who are let down. And it's painful in every case. But one person in this chapter does not rely on people. He kind of does anyway because they're there and you rely on people and they don't come through. In fact, when he needs them, they die on him. And other people do outrageous things that mess his life up. He's not depending on them. But instead, he depends on God. And he expects God to take care of him and never fail him. Isn't that audacious? Is that presumption? Hey, God, I need ya. No fooling. Do you ever feel like, whoa, that's, that's pretty uh, bold to depend on God like that. Can you really do that? But he does. He counts on God to save him in every situation. Because God has already done it. That is, God is David's redeemer. And David knows that he can rely on his redeemer. That's what we're looking at this morning. So I'm reading in 2 Samuel 4, just the first verse. Look what it says. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Okay, here's the first person let down, Ishbosheth. He's the king of Israel. And he's king because Abner took him and said, you're the heir of Saul, you're going to be the king. And that's how he became king. Not because he did anything. Now, 
Abner had the personality and the planning and the ideas and the motivation, and he did all the hard work, and Ishbosheth reaped the benefits. And now Ishbosheth's resource is gone. And so is his confidence. He can't turn to Abner and say, What do I do now? That would have been the best time, don't you think? My best counselor and support is gone. Abner, what, what do I do? You're gone. Well, now I'm really in trouble. He doesn't have any courage to face danger, uncertainty. The bottom of his life just fell out. But then it says all Israel was troubled. Here's the entire northern kingdom now going, what do we do? Because the leadership is shaky. And now all the people who depend on the leadership are saying, ah, I don't know what to do. You know what they're going to do? Nobody knows what we're going to do. Uncertainty. Who do they have to depend on to make things secure and peaceful? Now, we have some funny verses here. Just as soon as we begin this account, we have some interruptions. Verse 2. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bayana, and the other the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon the Berethite, of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth was part of Benjamin, because the Beerothites fled to Gittam and had been sojourners there until this day. So then, verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. All right. We start off with these two commanders under Ishbosheth, Rechab and Baana. They're from Ishbosheth's tribe of Benjamin. And then we're introduced, kind of a little detour here, to Mephibosheth son of Jonathan, who was David's great friend. Now, he comes into this account later, many chapters later. But somehow, the writer decides to introduce him here. It's kind of interesting. And the news about him is that his nurse, when he's five years old, hears the news about Saul and Jonathan Mephibosheth's father getting killed. The Philistines are coming. She has to take care of him. She's his nurse. She is his guardian. So she grabs him and she's going to run him to safety. But then, in her haste, something happens and he drops out of her grasp and he is injured in both of his legs so that he cannot walk ever again. Now this woman ha 
had a heart of gold and the best of intentions. And with all that, she literally let him down. Does everybody get that? So just file that away. And now we get into what Rahab and Beanna did. Verse 5. Then the sons of Rim and the Berethite, Rahab and Beanna, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Beana his brother escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the, the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. All right. They're from the tribe of Benjamin. They're his commanders. And I would think that Ishbosheth trusted these men. They were close to him. They looked like they were on his side, but actually they're on his side, their own side. They turn on him and they murder him while he's having a siesta, lying down on his own bed. And nobody thinks to ask, well, what are they doing here? So they just walk in. He's asleep. Put the head in the bag. Walk out. Nothing the matter. Nobody goes, well, what are you doing? They just betray trust all over the place. And then they go 80 miles to Hebron. In the middle of the night, they just scurry as fast as they can to get to David quick. And then they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David, hoping he will reward them for what they've done. The Lord has given you vengeance on your enemy Saul and his descendants. Now, this is not true, right? The Lord didn't tell them, go in and murder Ishbosheth, and it'll be okay. Because that's totally against God. You shall not murder. So this wasn't the Lord. And they know it's not the Lord. But these guys think, you know what? The end justifies the means. And David's going to be so happy that we took care of his enemy for us. That, you know, you don't know what could happen. He might reward us, he might make us commanders because we're his trusted guys. But then too late, they find out that David doesn't think like they assume that he would. Verse 9, 
But David answered Rechab and Baana his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought me good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed. Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So David doesn't react the way they assumed he would because just about any other ruler would have done like they thought. Hey, you took out a, a tough job for me. Now my way is clear. Everything is easy. Good job, guys. Almost anybody else would have done that. But David swears by the Lord that these wicked men who killed a righteous man are going to die right now this second. So he gives the word. They're killed on the spot. They cut off their hands and their feet and they hang them in the open above the pool of Hebron. Now what that means is everybody who goes to get their water in Hebron are going to see these two guys and it's going to be a reminder that this will not be tolerated. Isn't that a powerful encouragement? Don't kill a guy in his sleep. So, you notice that everybody almost in this chapter is depending on somebody else who lets them down. Ishbosheth looked to Abner. The nation looked to the leadership. And I don't know why Mephibosheth shows up in this chapter. But you notice his nurse failed him. Ishbosheth trusted Beana and Rechab, and they let him down. And Beana and Rechab trusted in themselves that they knew what they were doing. This is going to work. And too late they find out, no, this is not going to work. Can you imagine that rude shock? Kill him right now. What? Uh, and they realize, man, did we blow it. So look at this. You trust in others. You even trust in yourself. And it doesn't work. The situation changes for the worst. The people you trust in die. Or you let yourself down. 
Now the only person in this chapter who is not depending upon himself is David. And David depends on his Redeemer. You notice that? There in verse 9, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Now redeem means to buy back. You pay the price and that thing or person in the hand of another returns to you. That's what it means to redeem. It's like, I don't know if you've ever pawned anything, but you go to the store and you give up something, they give you so much for it, and they give you a ticket, and if you can scrape the money together, you can come back in, put the money down, and then get your item back. And so if you are able to get that money, you can go in there, and pay the money, and get your item back. It's yours again. Now, David says, the Lord has redeemed me from all adversity. And that means trouble, distress, extreme pain, suffering, anxiety. All adversity, whatever situation David finds himself in, the Lord has redeemed him from that. Already. You think, when did he do that? And the answer is, when the Lord redeemed Israel from Egypt. Israel was owned by Egypt. Israel were slaves. They had to do what their masters told them to do with no possible way to get out. And what God did was have them sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb, paint it on the lintel and the doorposts of their house. Then he sent the angel of death through Egypt to kill all the firstborns of the animals, of the people, even to the firstborn of Pharaoh. And when God's destroyer passed over the houses of Israel and saw the blood painted, he passed over those houses. And what God was saying is, the lamb is the price of redemption that frees you from slavery and from death. Now God redeemed Israel to be his own possession. And he asked them that. Do you want to be my possession and obey my laws? And they said, yes, we will do this. And so they offered sacrifices and the people were sprinkled with the blood. They were redeemed to be God's possession. Now the nation then became God's and they're redeemed. 
This means that God is going to redeem them out of every, every problem, all adversity. Now, you know, he gave them priests and he gave them sacrifices, but the purpose of the sacrifice was to restore the relationship that God established when they became his by redemption. So David is taking this personally. I am redeemed by God. I am his possession. He has not only redeemed me from everything that has happened, he will redeem me from everything that will happen. All adversity. And he has already done this. So, practically, this means that David is depending on God for his stability. God is the one he turns to when things blow up. And he goes, what do I do? And God tells him what to do and works in the situation to save David out of every situation. We've seen it so far in Samuel and we'll see it the rest of the time. Huge things happen. Lives blow up. It's a mess. And yet David relies upon the Lord who has redeemed him out of all adversity. Now, you know, God promised to make him king. And he has to wait a long time. He ends up working for the Philistines, scratching his head going, this doesn't look like the broad, straight path to kingship. Now he's king of Hebron for seven years, and he's actually in a civil war against the northern kingdom? This does not look like the path of kingship. And then just when he and Abner are working together peacefully to bring all Israel into it, Joab kills him. It's a mess. And yet through all this, God is working because he has redeemed David out of all adversity. Now, the entire nation is redeemed, but David has taken it personally. He has redeemed me out of all adversity. So look at this here. He's presented with the head of Ishbosheth. Didn't we do good? Ha, 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 ha. He says, Kill them now. We'll never know how God would have worked out the situation peacefully. We'll never know how God would have worked to preserve life and do things in a peaceful way so nobody feels ripped off. We'll never know. Because these bong heads say, we'll solve the problem by killing somebody. What a great idea. We're going to get rewarded for killing somebody. Hot dang. Let's go all night. Let's not take a week. Let's just burn.
burn through the night. Yahoo. What? No time to even say it was his idea. It was his idea. That's it. They're dead. Well, you notice that David is going to depend on God for some pretty amazing saves and deliveries because he expects it. David relies on his Redeemer and he is confident. So here's a principle in this chapter. And it is a strong encouragement to rely on your Redeemer. Because if you've received Jesus, you have been redeemed to become God's possession. Here's a bunch of scriptures that clearly point this out. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Titus 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So this is what it means to be a Christian. If you believe in Jesus, trusting in him, that he died in your place to take away your sins, you belong to God. And that never changes. Because God has first of all paid the price. Not silver or gold. Or anything. Because as far as God is concerned, the things that he has made are of no value. Because if he wanted to, he could create a billion universes made of solid gold. Couldn't he? So like, okay, so what? But the only person who has value in all of his existence is his only unique son. There's no replacement for him. You know that if you have a Stradivarius violin, 
made in the 1700s or 1600s, irreplaceable, insured for 15 million pounds or 50 million pounds or however much they cost. And some dope sits on it, ruins it. And you call up the insurance company and you say, some dope sat on my Stradivarius. Well, here's good news. Here's the 50 million pounds. You got 50 million pounds now. Is that going to restore your Stradivarius? Can you use 50 million pounds to get Stradivarius to make another one for you? See, it's irreplaceable. And so what good is the dough when that most valuable thing is gone? Well, this transcends all matter and space and time. The value of the Son of God is so valuable as to be, there is no equivalent. Once he's gone, he's gone forever. Just like that Stradivarius, just like that Ming vase, just like anything that's irreplaceable. And so his value is beyond the sin of every person who has ever lived. That's what you and I were redeemed with. So is God going to get careless with you and lose you after he has made you more valuable than the universe? Is he going to forget about you? See, he has redeemed you to himself. It's not going to happen. This is our confidence. This is how we know God loves me and his attitude toward me will never change because he has paid such an incalculable price. When you have something that's really valuable, you do not treat it like everyday ordinary stuff. You protect, you take care of it, you are not going to lose it. And that's you. Now, because you are his, you have confidence in your relationship with God. You have confidence. That is, whatever you need in the time of trouble is yours. God will give it to you. And so you ask. That jump starts an entire life of prayer. Because you know he will answer your prayer because you are his. See? And if he doesn't supply that thing you need, he's going to lose you. But that can never be. So you're going to pray in your time of need when someone dies and can no longer help you. When this blows up, 
and it messes your whole life up. When it goes wrong and you don't know what to do, you can have confidence in your Redeemer. You are redeemed to Him. Now, you know, we've got proof that this is real. We're not making this up, trying really desperately to hold on to this, you know. I hope it's true, yeah, I hope it's true too. <laughs> Probably isn't, shh, don't say stuff like that. Let's just hope against hope, shall we? Let's be desperate. See, we got an entire Bible of people who were redeemed to God and God redeemed them out of all adversity. That's why it really helps to know the Bible. It's full of people, not just David. Over and over and over again, God is there. God helps them. God has redeemed them out of all adversity. Case in point, here's Paul the Apostle. And Jesus gave Paul everything he needed so that he could face any difficulty with confidence. And as you know, Paul went through buckets of adversity. You got a whole list right there in 2 Corinthians 12 and 13. But here's what he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. At my first defense in front of the emperor of Rome, no one supported me, but all deserted me. There's the letdown. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And they cut off his head. And he is right now in the presence of God. Now just like David could say, the Lord has redeemed me from all adversity, you can say that too. And you should say it. And it's not presumption. Like, oh, I'm trusting God where I really shouldn't ought to be trusting God. It's, it's not right. That's the feeling that the devil will give you. You shouldn't do this. You're presuming upon God. You should be afraid, very afraid, because God is going to hit you from heaven with a piano. <laughs> That's what you fear most in life, isn't it? <laughs> Death by piano. It's not going to happen. You get to have full confidence. You get to live trusting in Him and relying upon Him. 
You get to do this. Is that not fabulous? Now, you know, people are around you and you depend upon them. And most of the time they're there, but sometimes they let you down. Forgive them. Don't worry about it because you let people down too and you let yourself down. But how much better it is to trust in the Lord. And so let us rely on our Redeemer. Let's pray. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for all of your loving kindnesses toward us, multiple. Because you're always doing good things for us. And your thoughts toward us cannot be counted for multitude. You know our name. You know where we're at. You know what kind of difficulty we're in. You know these things. And we thank you and praise you for redeeming us. Thank you for paying the price. Thank you that we're yours. And because we're yours, you will let nothing separate us from you and your love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the testimony of that. So we can pray this morning. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Do not forsake the works of your hands. That's what gives us courage to pray. And we pray that now. Here we are. We're in the midst of packing a container, working a job. We're in the midst of being married. We're pursuing our callings. And we need that confidence. And so we're looking at you now. And we're entrusting our lives to you. And we praise you and thank you for redeeming us from all adversity. Be glorified in each one of us this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.